Shalom. This is Gary Durashinsky, Congregational Leader of Beth Ariel Messianic Congregation. Thank you for downloading our message. We're delighted to make it available to you through the generous donations of our members and friends at Beth Ariel. We know that many are struggling financially because of the challenges facing our economy, and we do not want financial issues to keep anyone from enjoying our teachings. So please continue to listen in as often as you like. But if our presentations have been beneficial to you, and you are able to provide a financial donation to Beth Ariel, whether large or small, would you prayerfully consider sending a gift in support of our ministry? You can donate online through our website at bethariel.org. That is spelled B-E-T-H-A-R-I-E-L dot org. Also, please remember to pray for us that we would be responsive to the Lord's guidance as we reach out to the lost sheep of the House of Israel in the greater Los Angeles area. Thank you, and I hope you enjoyed this message. It's not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the powers of this dark world, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly realms. Therefore, put on the full armor of God, so that when the day of evil and testing comes, you may be able to stand your ground. And after you have done everything to stand, stand firm then, with the belt of truth buckled around your waist the breastplate of righteousness in place, with your feet fitted with the readiness that comes from the gospel, the good news of peace. In addition to all this, take up the shield of faith with which you can extinguish all the flaming arrows of the evil one. Take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the Spirit, which is the word of God, and pray in the Spirit on all occasions with all kinds of prayers and requests. With this in mind, be alert. And always keep on praying for all the saints. Pray also for me, that whenever I open my mouth, words may be given me, so that I will fearlessly make known the mystery of the good news, for which I am an ambassador in chains. Pray that I may declare it fearlessly, as I should. This is a passage about spiritual warfare. And as I was thinking about that very reality, you know, the, the Bible from beginning to end is about spiritual warfare. When the book of Genesis opens, we find the serpent more crafty than any other beast in the world that God had made. They're luring Adam and Eve to sin. Their very first encounter is of a spiritual nature. Indeed, it's material. There is a snake that is there in their midst. They are in a particular place. They are being lured to eat of the fruit of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. But behind all of that, somewhat hard to see perhaps, somewhat non-visibly, there is a spiritual battle that is at work. And the evil one was there in the midst of utilizing the serpent so as to lure Adam and Eve into sin. When we get to the end of the Bible, the book of Revelation, that book opens for us a whole slew of events that have to do with angelic and demonic forces that are in battle with one another. And the peoples of the earth experiencing the ramifications of that conflict. You and I do not see that conflict as it swirls around us, but it is there. We cannot help but think of that incident in the life of Elisha 
the prophet, the one who picked up the mantle of Elijah. In 2 Kings chapter 6, you remember that there was that incident where the Assyrian king, Ben-Hadad, was attacking the northern kingdom of Israel. And every time he would move his forces against the northern kingdom of Israel, the king of Israel knew exactly what his plans and purposes were, and he moved his armies accordingly and bade Ben-Hadad's attempts to unravel and destroy the northern kingdom of Israel was vanquished at every point. Eventually, Ben-Hadad, he says, there must be a spy in our midst. Because someone keeps telling the king of Israel where we are planning to attack next. And his advisors tell him, there's no spy among you. There's no spy among us. But Israel has a prophet. And the God of Israel makes known to the prophet what your intentions are at each and every turn. And therefore, he's always prepared. Now, if you and I were Ben-Hadad, with that information in tow, what would we do? We would decide maybe it's best not to attack the northern kingdom of Israel. We would probably surmise if the king keeps being made aware of what our plans and intentions are, obviously we're not going to be able to be successful. But Ben-Hadad is not as brilliant as you and I are. Rather, Ben-Hadad decides what we must do is capture that prophet. You would think that if it's nearly impossible, and it was impossible, to attack the armies of Israel, certainly it's going to be impossible to take the prophet who is informing the king of his every move. But no, Ben-Hadad is intent on capturing Elisha. Elisha is now in the city of Dothan. Same city that Joseph, or area that Joseph, looks for his brothers when Jacob sent him north to find them. And then he was sold into slavery. He's in Dothan. And Ben-Hadad, for one reason or another, is aware of his presence in Dothan. So he mobilizes all of his armies to this village, to this city, in order to capture Elijah. Elijah is really worried Because he just simply falls asleep the night before. The next morning, he sends his servant out, as was his custom, to get water, perhaps, for his master, Elisha. When the servant leaves the dwelling place, goes out into the courtyard to draw some water, he looks and he sees outside the city gates that the whole city is surrounded by Ben-Hadad's forces. And he drops his bucket, we would imagine. He runs back inside the gate, goes to his master, Elisha, and he says, Elisha, do you know what I just saw? Elisha asks, what What did you see? And he says, I saw the armies of Ben-Hadad, the Aramean, the Syrian, surrounding Dothan. And his intention, obviously, is to get us. Elijah sort of like wipes the cobwebs from his eyes and he says, don't be worried about Ben-Hadad's forces. It reminds me something of like Yeshua, you know, when he fell asleep in the boat and the storm is just brewing and the disciples wake him up and you can imagine him just waking up. Why are you waking me up? You know, everything's under control. 
Elisha similarly says, listen, you don't have nothing to worry about. But the interesting thing is the reason why they have nothing to worry about. Elisha says to his servant, there are more who are with us than there are with them. So Ben-Hadad's forces of nearly 100,000 or so troops had with him others, demonic forces that could not be seen that were there empowering Ben-Hadad. But Elijah wasn't concerned because he said, we have more with us than they have, the armies of Ben-Hadad has with them. And then he prays. And he says, Lord, open the eyes of my servant so he can get a glimpse of who is exactly with us. And his eyes are opened and he sees throughout all of the hillside and all around he and Elisha, chariots and men of fire that are there in defense against his prophet. The result is that when Ben-Hadad moves his forces against Elisha, that the Lord strikes them with blindness and their attack is vanquished. What's interesting is that there are, there's a spiritual battle that is at work behind all of these events that are going on in our world and to the, a large degree behind all of the events in our lives as well. The writer to the Hebrews says that we have angels that are protecting us. Every one of us, when we come to know the Lord, there's an angel that's dispatched to watch out for us. Some might be complaining about their charge, but they are there on duty doing their work. And they might be saying, Lord, why did you give me such a tough job? And others, they may be saying, hey, it's too bad. I've got an easy one, you know. But all of them have a job in defending us and protecting us. Why? Because there are spiritual forces at work. And so Paul is very much aware of this reality. Four or five times he uses the word against because we battle against principalities, against powers, against authorities, against rulers in high places. Five times he uses the word against to emphasize we are in a battle. We oftentimes think that when we've come to know the Lord, things should run smoothly. And that when there's a need, all we do is cry out to the Lord and he will provide that need to make our life run smoothly. But what Paul is telling us is that is not true. The Lord may, in fact, and is there with us. I will never leave you nor forsake us. But he doesn't always make things run smoothly. All we need to do is to look at the lives of key figures in the scriptures to know that's true. And one that comes immediately to mind is Job. And another is Yeshua himself. And so while the Lord is with us and empowers us and strengthens us, it's not as if we do not experience a perplexing, as Paul says in the book of Corinthians. It's not as if we never experience persecution. It's not as if we never experience a sense of pressing down upon us. Paul says we are pressed, but we are not. What does he say? We are pressed, but we are not something like crushed or something like that. He says we are perplexed, but we are not in despair. He says we are persecuted, but we are not abandoned. 
He says one last thing. And he says, but we are not, we are put down or something like that. But we are not destroyed. We experience all of those hardships and all of those struggles. Because there is a spiritual battle we are engaged in. And Paul tells us how we are to wage that battle. He says, not in our own strength, but he says, put on or be strong in the Lord and in his mighty power. And therefore, he says, to put on, take up, clothe yourselves, are the three verbs that he uses, the full armor of God. Twice he says the full armor of God. When he says the armor of God, he does not mean to simply say that which God supplies us with. What he means to say is the very armor that God himself is robed in is the armor that he now gives to you. Now, that's a metaphor. Somebody asked me, you mean God has to wear armor? No, he doesn't have to wear armor because God is not a man. God is spirit. And they that worship him must worship in spirit and in truth. These are metaphors to give us an understanding of his might and his power. And so in Isaiah chapter 11, we see Messiah is clothed with a sash, a belt of righteousness and truth. We see in Isaiah, I think it's chapter 59, verse 7, where it says, And God put on his head the helmet of salvation and a breastplate of righteousness. These are images to help us understand the might, power, strength, and character of our God. When Paul says, put on the whole armor of God, he's saying, put on that which clothes the Lord himself. That which characterizes God himself. Put on him, is what Paul is saying. That is a privilege that he grants to us to withstand And to stand on the evil day, Paul says, that we will all encounter. We all will go through times of great testing and trial. And Paul tells us how to wage the battle. Paul is not only aware of God's armor, but he's also very much aware about the armor that the Roman soldiers wore during his day. After all, he's writing to Ephesus. He's writing from prison in Rome. And he is personally chained to one of these legionnaires. So he knows exactly what they wear. And he utilizes that as an illustration of what we are to put on in battle as well. The first thing he talks about is the belt of truth. So the Roman soldier had a belt. When he was on leave, he would untie his belt so he would relax. But when he was on duty, his belt was made tight and strong. The belt secured his breastplate that went over his shoulders and tied to his belt. His belt secured the scarab within which he had his sword. And so it made him battle ready. His belt and the tightening of his belt gave him confidence to wage the battle he was about to be engaged in. Paul says to engage in this battle with the evil one and his emissaries, we need to have the belt of truth tightly drawn around our waists so that we have a sense of confidence we can wage this battle through victory. This idea of truth, I think, is in two directions. One is we are to be tightened with the truth of the nature and the character of God himself revealed in Scripture. 
We need to have a sense that we know who God is. No sense going into battle if we don't know our maker and our master. Can you imagine the Roman soldier going into battle with his belt all loose and things just, you know, sort of flobbing around as he's trying to engage the enemy? We need to be students of the word because we need to enter into this fray knowing God and knowing him well as he is revealed to us in his word. But it's not only the knowledge and truth of God that Paul is thinking about, but we need to be truthers ourselves. We need to be truthful and people of integrity. It is when we have a clear conscience, because we are people of integrity, and when we have a thorough knowledge of the character of God, that we can enter the fray with confidence that there are no loose ends to be spoken of. The belt of truth is meant to give us confidence in knowledge of him and the knowledge that our heart is pure in what we are doing. We are truthful and people of integrity. Not only does he speak of this belt of truth, he speaks of the breastplate of righteousness. The breastplate, of course, on the Roman soldier protected his chest, protected his ribcage, his lungs, and his heart. If that was struck, he's down for the count. And so the breastplate protected this very significant, central, critical organ in the Roman soldier's body. By righteousness, I think Paul means two things as well. Theologians speak about the righteousness of God that is imputed to us. The word imputed means that it is applied to us. It is given to us. It is not our own righteousness. It's the righteousness of God that is granted to us that we could stand before him and before our enemies. If you do not have the righteousness of God imputed to you, you cannot stand in this battle. You will be destroyed and vanquished in a moment's time. It is the Lord's righteousness that must protect us. There is a very powerful imagery of this. If you want to look at it, you can turn in your Bibles to Zechariah chapter 3. And Zechariah has a vision of heaven. And he sees the throne of God opened before him. And God is there on his throne. And standing before God is Joshua, who is the high priest during the time of Zechariah's ministry. And on the right-hand side of Zechariah, of Joshua is the evil one, Satan. By the way, the word Satan means adversary, the one who is our enemy. Paul uses the word devil here, the devil's schemes. The Greek word diablos means accuser, slanderer. He stands before God and he begins to accuse Joshua regarding his sinfulness. And Joshua stands before the Lord with these high priestly robes that are all stained and blemished and dirty and soiled. And the evil one is pointing out those marks of soil upon his clothing. And he's saying, you see, your own high priest is sinful. 
He himself is rebellious. He himself is faithless. He himself sometimes even doubts what he's doing when he's offering the sacrifices, if they are of any worth or significance whatsoever. He comes before God as the accuser of Joshua. In the book of Revelation, he's referred to as the accuser of the brethren. But then he is interrupted by one who stands on his left, the right-hand side of God. And this one on his left is introduced to us with these words, Behold the man who is the branch. And he stands up for Joshua. And he tells those that are around, the angelic pantheon that is in the very presence of God, and he tells them, Go and get clean white robes for Joshua. And he's clothed now in white robes, signifying righteousness. But they are not his robes. They are robes that are placed upon him by the power of the branch. Those robes were imputed to Joshua. They were granted to Joshua. They were given to Joshua. They were not Joshua's. They were the Lord's himself. And thus he stands in the righteousness, clothed in the righteousness that only the Messiah can provide. I'd love to get into that phrase, the man who is the branch. Because that's a significant phrase, a significant term that's used of the Messiah of Israel. You'll see it in Isaiah chapter 4. You'll see it in Jeremiah chapter 23. You'll see it in Zechariah chapter 6. And it is a marvelous study of the nature and character of the Messiah of Israel. But here he is the agent by which Joshua is made righteous before God. It's not a righteousness of his own. It's a righteousness of the Messiah himself. That's why Paul says in 1 Corinthians 1, he is our righteousness. He is our redemption. He is our reconciliation. We're to have the breastplate of Messiah's righteousness if we're going to be able to stand before the enemy and his cohorts. But when Joshua is clothed with the righteousness of God, it's interesting what God tells him. Because once he's clothed, he now encourages him, challenges him, commands him to walk in the righteousness with which he has now been clothed. And so when Paul talks about the breastplate of righteousness, he's talking about Messiah's own righteousness, but the righteousness that results in our own lives because of the righteous one in whose righteousness we have been clothed. So how do we wage this battle? We need to know the truth of God. So we need to be good students of his word so we might know him better. We need to be truthers ourselves people of integrity so that our consciences are clear. We need to be a people who have put on the righteousness of Messiah, or maybe better, have had the righteousness of God put on us. And as a result, live a life of righteousness that bears testimony to the work that God has done in our lives. He tells us not only the belt of truth and the breastplate of righteousness, but that our feet are to be Shod, is that the word? Shod with the readiness of the gospel of peace. The Roman soldier had unique sandals. 
They had extra thick leather padding. And they actually had nails or spikes that were attached to them that were on its that went through its soles. The purpose of that, of course, was to give them some grip when they were in battle, say, on grassy areas or sandy areas. To give them some grip when they would be climbing up hills or on rocks. And it was extra thick so that it could stand the wear and tear of the long journeys on the Roman roads and various forests and other places and terrain they had to walk through. Paul is telling us, and his emphasis is on the readiness of our feet to move where God would call us and lead us so that we would bring the message of peace wherever he calls. We need to be ready to move in a moment's notice. Like the Roman soldier, when when his officer told him to go, he went. We too have a commanding officer. And you remember that story where the Roman centurion comes to Messiah and says, just say the word because I have soldiers under me. And when I say the word, they do my bidding. So if you just say the word, my son or daughter or my servant, I can't remember which, will be healed. We too are to be like that. When the Lord calls, we need to be ready to go. And so Peter tells us, always be ready to have a reason for the hope that lies within you, for anyone who asks, and to respond, I'm not so certain I like these phrases, but to respond with gentleness and humility. How often our response is with antagonism and an attempt to win the argument. I can tell you many times when Jehovah's Witnesses come to my door and I said, hold on, let me get my stuff and out comes all my information, you know. I remember once Mary Lou was at the top of the stairs and she was listening in without my knowledge to what I was saying. And she, after I closed the door, she said, you know, if I was Jehovah's Witness, I wouldn't want to ask the Lord in my life after how I heard you respond. I said, really? I thought I was very convincing. I lacked the gentleness and the humility with which we are to share the good news of our Lord. But Paul's concern is that we're always ready, because you never know when someone needs to hear the words of life. So here's the question. Are you ready right now? Someone walk through those doors. Someone tell me the the gospel. Tell me how I can be saved. And every hand goes up. I got it. I can do it. No, I got it. No, I'm okay. I can do this one. We have to be ready with the good news of peace. It's the news that enables us to have peace with God, with ourselves, and with one another. So we need the belt of truth, the breastplate of righteousness, our feet with the right sandals that can handle the road, and ready to give a response to anyone who asks. He tells us we need to have on our heads the helmet of salvation. In Isaiah 59, it says that the Lord placed on his own head the helmet of salvation. In 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, verse 8, Paul talks about our need to have on our heads the helmet of the hope of salvation. So when the Roman soldier would go into battle, it was not uncommon, and it's still common to this day, that in the heat of battle, it is very easy to get confused 
and to lose one's way, to know where the enemy truly are, the adrenaline starts pumping, the arms start going, the intuition just starts happening and how people are trained. There's just the immediate intuitive response. And then when the soldier starts thinking about what's happening, it is not uncommon for confusion and disorientation to set in. The helmet was to protect the head of the soldier. And the helmet of salvation is to protect our minds from the confusion that comes in the heat of battle. We've all experienced it. When decisions need to be made, sometimes very quickly, and we're not really sure what we should do in a given circumstance, not really sure how we should respond to a, an individual who may have spoken to us, not really sure how to respond to an email or a letter or whatever the case might be. And it gets confusing and we become disoriented. And we start responding. We say, no, no, I can't say that. They may take it this way. No, I'm not sure. And we need the helmet of salvation to remind us of who we are as children of God, saved, glorified, and intended and determined to enter into the very kingdom of God. So we need our heads protected. The evil one would desire to bring confusion into our lives. How often have we doubted, is God really in this thing? I don't see him. As a young believer, did the Lord really save me for eternity? The doubts begin to creep in and they don't go away. We just look, begin to doubt other things in the course of our lives. But it's the same craftiness and wiles of the enemy to destroy our ability to fight the battle of righteousness before our Lord. So we need to be reminded of, we need to be encouraged in what God has done to make us his own children, sons and daughters of himself, so that we move forward in the fray in a way that God would be glorified and lifted up. He then tells us that we need to have the shield of faith Roman soldiers had two seals, shields. Did you know they carried something like 80 pounds of stuff when it went into battle? It's the same reason why Marines today carry the same amount, 70, 80 pounds. They carried two shields. One was a round shield that was used in close battle, leather straps to hold, but they always also had to carry a lengthier, longer shield. It was usually about four and a half feet by two and a half feet wide. It would protect the soldier from his neck down to his ankles. The same word used for that shield is the word Paul uses here. And that's a very interesting shield because it's the first shield the Roman soldier would use as they march in their flanks uh, arrangement in to the, the battlefield and against the enemy. That shield was made of two layers of wood that were glued together. It had a linen cloth around it and then animal skin and then bronze uh, clamps that would hold it all together. It was very thick. One soldier, one incident I had read about, a soldier after battle counted 240 arrows stuck in his shield. So those shields had to have three things. Paul makes reference to them. Number one, they had to be a shield that was made well, that it could withstand the fiery darts 
of the enemy. Those are arrows that were set aflame so that if it didn't strike you, it may catch on your clothing or catch on the grass that you're walking in or catch on the trees that are around you or on your shield and begin to blaze in fire. The evil one throws out not just arrows, but fiery arrows to destroy us and harm us and maim us. We need to have a faith that can withstand his attacks. Now, when he talks about faith, it's interesting. He doesn't use the definite article, the shield of the faith. He says the shield of faith. He's speaking not about our faith, the faith or our belief in Messiah, but our ability to trust him in hard places. We need to have a sturdy, strong enough faith that will enable us to believe God no matter the circumstances that we face and that surround us. It has to take the fiery arrows of the enemy so it better be made well. And that kind of faith doesn't just come overnight. It comes over time and experience and endurance. So it needs to be a strong enough faith that helps you to get through each and every moment. Not just a strong shield. Those shields were also unique because they were like interlocking. When the Roman soldier went into battle and the order was given to put up those shields, every soldier would raise that shield and the shields would connect to each other so that they were all protected by each one raising that shield. It speaks of the interconnection, the linkage between the individuals in battle. Our faith must be like that. We are one body made of many parts, but the parts must come together in order to serve our Lord well and to serve one another effectively. We need to be on each other's side as the Roman soldiers saw each other to be. They would never leave one of their own on the battlefield. The Marines had the very same and all of our armed forces had the very same commitment. And thus the shield of faith was a faith that locked arms together and marched into battle, not as individuals, but as one. So that shield had to be sturdy. That shield had to link. And that shield had to be utilized effectively in order to protect each and every one. So we need the belt of truth, truth of God and truth of ourselves. We need to have the breastplate of righteousness, the imputed righteousness of Messiah and our living out righteously because of his righteousness. We need to have that helmet of salvation that protects us during times of doubt and confusion. We need to have our feet with the right sandals that we go anywhere the Lord calls and we're ready to give the answers that people might know with gentleness and humility. We need to have that shield of faith in which our trust in God is deep and great. We don't want the Lord saying of us, oh, you of little faith. We want to be ones in which he says, I have not seen such faith in all of L.A. And so we want to have a faith that withstands the fiery darts, links together and is used for the benefit of all. And then he tells us we are to have the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God. Roman soldiers had two swords. 
One was a very long sword which was used with two hands. But the word used here is not that sword. It's the short sword that was double-bladed that was used with one hand while using the shield to protect with the other. It's interesting, too, because he says, which is the word of God. There's two words in Greek for word. There's the Greek word logos, which is used of Messiah himself. In the beginning was the logos, the word. The word was with God. The word was God. We don't have time to get into it, but it is the comparable parallel Greek word for the Aramaic term used in the, in the paraphrases of the Hebrew scriptures to speak of the Messiah who appeared to the prophets. The word of the Lord came to Ezekiel, appeared to the prophets and gave them the revelation that God would have them receive. That's the word logos, but that's not the word Paul uses here. The word Paul uses here is rhema. And in many charismatic circles, they misunderstand this word. This word rhema means saying, statement. So when Paul says, for the sword of the Spirit is the rhema of God, it's the words, sayings, teachings of God in the Scripture that is to, is to bring us through the battle. That's why Yeshua's encounter with, with the Satan is so significant. It is written, it is written, it is written. And if you look at Matthew chapter, I think Matthew chapter 4 or Luke chapter 4, he quotes from Deuteronomy chapter 8. And he says, we are to obey every word of God. When Yeshua uses the word word, he uses the word rhema. What he's saying is, we are to be obedient to every saying, teaching of God, and therefore you shall have no other gods before you. You are not to test the Lord your God. You are to worship the Lord. Those are rhemas. Those are statements. Love one another. That's a rhema. That's a statement. What Paul is telling us is that the sword of the Spirit are the statements of God in Scripture that are to guide how we act and how we behave. It is with that that we have our only offensive weapon against the evil one. Everything else is defensive, protecting us, but that puts us on the attack. It is written, and I will do what it says. It is written, and I will not succumb to that behavior, for it is contrary to what the Lord has told me. It is written, and that is how I will live my life. Now, if all that weaponry isn't enough, we have one last secret weapon, as it were. And that's how Paul ends this section. And let me do the same in the few moments that I have. Look at verse 19, at verse 18. Five times he tells us of this. First in verse 18, pray in the Spirit. In verse 18, always keep on praying for all the saints. Verse 10, verse 19, excuse me, pray also for me. Look at verse 20, pray that I may declare it fearlessly. If we have all these weaponries in place, there's one other element we need to add to it all, and that is prayer. And notice what Paul says about prayer. Look at verse 19. Excuse me, look at verse 18. First of all, we're to pray in the power of the Spirit. 
Real prayer is not just a statement to God. It is a moving of the Spirit of God in our hearts and minds and thoughts that are then reiterated to the Lord who has engendered it in our very souls and very inner core of our being. We are to pray in the Spirit as the Spirit empowers and leads and gives and as He reveals to us His Word. As he makes known, as we understand his word, we're to pray his word, as it were. So he says, pray in the spirit. Notice this. He says, pray all kinds of prayers. So for me, I think of acts, adoration, confession, thanksgiving, supplication. All kinds of prayers ought to reflect our praying. We ought to be adoring the Lord in our prayers, magnifying his name and lifting him up. We ought to be confessing our sin and acknowledging our need for him. We ought to be expressing our thanksgiving for everything we have and what he has enabled us to become. We need to pray for others and intercede with supplications where there is need. Pray the Lord would grant us our daily bread. He not only tells us of all kinds of prayers, look at this other all, on all occasions... There's not an occasion not to pray. When you're happy, give praise to the Lord. When you're sad, let him know of your sadness. When you are in doubt, let him know of your need. When you are in want, let him know of what is lacking. Paul says pray in the Spirit. Pray on every occasion. Pray with all kinds of prayers as we are enabled to pray. And then he says, keep on praying for all the saints. That means make prayer a characteristic of your life and to pray for all the saints. Some we can pray for very specifically. In fact, in chapter verse 19, Paul is going to ask for specific prayers. But where we don't have specifics, we can pray in general. We can pray generally for the believers in China. We know what they struggle with. We know some of their needs. We could pray for believers in Muslim countries. We know what they struggle with. We know some of their needs. We can pray for our people. We know what their needs are. We don't have to know specifics to pray generally for all the saints, wherever they may be located and whatever they may be encountering. But then Paul tells us to pray specifically. I just want you to see what Paul asks prayer for. If you think that you feel somewhat, why should I be asking God about this? Think about this. Paul says, pray for me that whenever I open my mouth, words would be given me so that I will make known the mystery of the gospel. Are you kidding me, Paul? I mean, you of all people know the mystery of the gospel. But Paul knew his weakness. And he needed prayer to know the mystery. He needed prayer for the right words. This is a guy that taught and preached all over the place. You would think that if Paul was here, hey, Paul, could you share a word with us? And he would say, I'd love to. But Paul also notes, I need prayer for the right words. But notice this, too. Twice he says this, that I might pray and declare it fearlessly, as I should. You mean Paul was afraid to make known the gospel on occasion? 
Oh, my goodness. This is a man that was stoned and left for dead. This is a man that was beat. This is a man that had riots when he was in the theater at Ephesus, for example. This is a man that's chained to a Roman soldier in some dark, secluded place. And he says, pray that I will proclaim this fearlessly. What people look to us on the outside is very often not the case of what they are on the inside. On the outside, Paul looks like, I can do this, and I'm not afraid. (laughs) But Paul now exposes something. I can't do this without prayer, and I can't do this without his strength. So if we're to wage this battle with the enemy, we need to be prepared, as Paul says. Because we don't just wrestle against flesh and blood the things we see. We wrestle against powerful forces and dangerous beings. They are not all-powerful, only God is. They are not everywhere, only God is. They don't know everything, only God does. But they are still very powerful forces, as, as all of us can attest. And the only way to vanquish those forces marshaled against us, and the only way to be victorious is not in the power of our own strength, but in the might and in the power of God and in his strength. So we want to take on the whole armor of God himself. For it is only he that can enable us to withstand the evil day when it comes. Let's pray. Our God and Father, we thank you for your word to us this morning. We all encounter challenges of a variety of kinds. And we all experience the onslaught of the enemy that would seek to undermine our walk with you. So help us, Lord, to stand firm. And help us, Lord, to do everything so as to stand firm. Let us know of your truth, and may we live truthfully. May we have and experience and receive your righteousness. And may we then be enabled to live righteously before you and our enemy. May we be ones that are ready with a word of hope and of grace and of salvation for anyone who asks. And to have that word with humility and with gentleness. May we be ones that put on that helmet of salvation, reminding us of the great work you have begun and will complete when times of doubt and confusion arise. Help us, Lord, with our faith. Help us, we believe, but help us in our unbelief that we might have a shield of faith that is strong and sturdy and interlocking with our brothers and sisters in order to withstand those fiery darts of the enemy. Help us, Lord, to know your word, that we would live it, and thus put it into practice by your empowerment. And help us, Lord, to grow in the discipline of prayer, that we would pray always, that we would pray all kinds of prayers in all kinds of situations for all the believers, wherever they may be, And help us, Father, to pray for one another the very specific needs that arise in our lives. If we do this, 
then, Father, we shall experience a great manifestation of your presence and of your divine aid. It is that for which we long. For we pray in Messiah's name. Amen. Thank you for listening to our message. We hope that it serves to encourage you in your walk with the Lord and your service to Him. Do remember us in your prayers, and if you are able to provide a financial donation to Beth Ariel, whether large or small, would you prayerfully consider sending a gift in support of our ministry? You can donate online through our website at bethariel.org. That is spelled B-E-T-H-A-R-I-E-L.org. Thank you again, and may our Heavenly Father richly bless you as you continue to follow Him. Shalom, shalom.